Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8? And if you're new to this, let me just say that we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And as we come to chapter 8, and actually chapters 8 and 9 really, um, we enter into a new section in the book. As we have said before, the theme of Matthew's Gospel is to present primarily to the Jewish people, but of course to all of us, Jesus, the Messiah and King of Israel. And so far, he's introduced us to the person of the King in the first four chapters, then the principles of the King in chapters 5 through 7, also known as the Sermon on the Mount. And now in chapters 8 and 9, he is introducing us to the power of the King. And he does so by recording ten miracles that Jesus performed which testified to the fact that he had power and authority to be king because he had power and authority over disease, demons, nature, and over death itself. And so Matthew is kind of giving us now a look into the mighty power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've looked at the first four miracles, the cleansing of a leper, uh, Jesus healing a centurion's uh, young slave, uh, Jesus heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law, And then in verses 16 and 17, really it's not one miracle, but uh, he um, heals various diseases and casts out numerous demons out of people in the town of Capernaum. Now, we stop there, and Matthew inserts something in between the miracles that he was using to present the power and authority of Jesus. And at first it seems like he threw this in, and it really doesn't pertain to what he's doing here, uh, but Obviously, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, nothing ever gets just thrown in, okay? It's always here for a reason. Let's go through it, and I'll tell you what I think is the reason he included this. But let's just pick it up in verse 18 of Matthew 8. It says, When Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. That would be the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. And so we are introduced to two would-be disciples, two potential disciples, even though the second one is already called a disciple. uh, The term was often used in a very loose way to denote people that were kind of following Jesus, kind of, you know, not real consistently, just checking him out to decide if they wanted to be a full-fledged disciple. That's where this guy was coming from, okay? But here we see two guys, two potential disciples. Both of them want to kind of join up with Jesus. And for a lot of Christians, you read that and go, hip, hip, hooray. Isn't that wonderful when people want to join up with Jesus? Well, you know, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. We'll say, well, what do you mean? Well, it all depends on why they want to follow Jesus. And? Do they understand what's involved? I want you to know that the encounter with these two men really needs to be seen against the backdrop of verses 16 to 18. So let me read those. It says, When evening had come, they brought to him, to Jesus, many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And it's important to see the context here because it could very well be that the reason this man was so quick to promise Jesus that he would follow the Lord wherever the Lord went was because he was overwhelmed by the magnitude of all the miracles he had seen taking place that day. Jesus healed many of various diseases, cast out demons, no doubt healed the blind, the lame, and so on. These were spectacular miracles. And this guy, some people are kind of emotional, aren't they? I mean, you know, they're, they're more emotional than, than, than others. And this guy could have been one of those emotional type individuals where he was so overwhelmed at the magnitude of the miracles that he was moved to emotion and made a hasty promise, an emotional response instead of really a well-thought-out decision. And that was the point here. Jesus doesn't want quick, impulsive, you know, emotional commitments from people who really don't understand the commitment that they are making to him when they say, I'll follow you, Lord, wherever you go. Okay, Easy to say the words. A lot harder to live the life. And Jesus Christ didn't want people following him who had not counted the cost. Remember Luke 14? Jesus lays this out and says, look, don't follow me until you first counted the cost. There are costs involved. And it's easy to make a quick emotional response based on you're overwhelmed, you know. And, and people do that when they come to church. They come to church and they're lonely, they're hurting, and they come. And there's a group of people that will embrace them and rally around them and just love on them. And, and then they hear a message and maybe it just touches something, a felt need that they've got. And they're moved to emotion. They want to run up here and receive Jesus. Well, hey, look, we're excited that you want to receive Jesus. But we want to make sure you want to do it for the right reasons. And that's what Jesus wanted of those who decided that they wanted to follow him. Were they doing it for the right reasons? Very important point, okay? And so Jesus kind of pours some cold water on this young guy. He was a young guy. On his uh, emotions, you say, pour a little cold water. Give him a little reality check. A little wake-up call. And said, look, it's great that you want to follow me. Do you understand what's involved? Have you thought this through? Do you realize that when you become one of my disciples, guess what? It's not going to be a life of physical prosperity or earthly comforts. It's not going to be the easy road. In fact, he said to him in verse 20, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, does that mean that Jesus slept outside all the time? No, he had places that he slept in, but they were the houses that were owned by people that... uh, followed his ministry. Uh, While he was in uh, Jerusalem ministering, he would go to Bethany to stay at the house of a couple of sisters and their brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They often invited the Lord to spend the night, uh, even fed him and his disciples. And and so he, of course, had places to stay. Uh, People that would open their homes to him and even his disciples. But the Lord himself had no real possessions. He never owned a home. In fact, when he was crucified, the only thing he owned were the clothes on his back. So it's interesting how that today, so many pastors and TV evangelists are using the very thing to draw people to Jesus that Jesus used to push people away. I mean, they're saying, look, come to Jesus, man. I mean, boy, he's going to do spectacular things in your life. In fact, there's a lot of thrill seekers, would-be disciples of Christ today who are thrill seekers, who are always running after signs and wonders, you know? Uh, You know, wherever there might be a, a, a sign, a wonder, a healing, a miracle... If you follow some of these ministries, or miracles are happening every day, everywhere. I don't believe that. I believe our God still does miracles. I believe he still heals. But not like they would have you believe. You know, and again, so many people are emotion-driven. You know, they're, they're emotion junkies. 
And they want to get their, their Holy Ghost high in a sense, okay? They want to go to places where they can get a thrill. And so they run after signs and wonders, and many of them have been promised earthly possessions if they follow Christ. They can be rich and business prospering. You know, that's drawn a lot of would-be disciples to Jesus that I don't think are really saved. And Jesus here chased people away for wanting to come to him for those very reasons. It's just a sign of the times, though. As Paul the Apostles in the last days, people wouldn't want to hear sound doctrine, but would want to gather teachers to themselves who would tickle their ears. And uh, we're seeing it today. So this first guy makes a hasty promise. And Jesus has to correct him, make sure that his thinking is right. Well, that was the first would-be disciple. Let's look at the second one, verse 21. Then another of his disciples, and again, this was not a man who was at this point genuinely committed, but he was checking things out. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, many people, when they read that, are taken back. It seems, you know, uncharacteristically, you know, insensitive by Jesus. You know, Jesus is always compassionate, kind. This seems a little hard. People read that and go, wow, you know, I mean... It doesn't seem right that Jesus, you know, wouldn't let this guy go and bury his dead father, uh, but said, you got to follow me right now, right? I mean, doesn't God command us to honor our parents? Wouldn't it be honoring to his father to bury him before following Jesus? Yeah, certainly it would, if the father was dead. But that was the whole point of the story. This guy's father was still very much alive. He said, well, what do you mean? How could that, how do you know that? Because the Jewish people didn't embalm dead bodies like the Egyptians. And when a Jewish person died, they always buried the body that same day. Hot climate, decay would start immediately. So, you know, if you're not going to embalm, which preserves the body, you better bury that body real quick. And so the Jews typically buried, uh, if a person died in the evening, that next day right away. But they always tried to bury that person as quickly as they could. Now, here's the deal. If this guy's father had died that day, he wouldn't have been in the crowd following Jesus, talking to Jesus. He'd be home tending to his father's funeral. Besides, scholars who have studied Middle Eastern customs will tell you that the expression, let me first bury my father, was actually a figure of speech that referred to a son's responsibility to help his father in the family business until the father died and the inheritance could be distributed among the children. So you see what the man is really saying to Jesus is, Lord, you know, someday when my father dies... You know, it's always someday, right? I'm going to get serious. Someday, when my father dies uh, and I receive my inheritance, you know what? Then I'll be in a position financially to really get serious about you, Lord, and to really follow you with all my heart. So I'm going to, I plan on doing this, Lord. I plan on getting serious. But, you know, Dad, you know, he's going to pass away and get the inheritance. Then I'll be in a place financially where I'll be able to, you know, really follow you. And so the first guy makes a hasty promise. What's wrong with this guy what's wrong with this guy he's guilty of what misplaced priorities first guy hasty promise not thinking it through not counting the cost this guy misplaced priorities and you know what there are a lot of christians who basically say to the lord lord you know i'm i'm not ready right now to follow you completely but when i finish school or i get that degree or when i get that new position in the company or when i start that business Lord, you know, when I finish this, then I'll really be ready to follow you with all my heart. 
Now, we have to be careful now. I don't want you to go away with the wrong impression. Because I heard a true story about a, a Christian mother. Uh, she had uh, some small children. And she kind of interpreted this idea that we're talking about to mean that, you know what, she was not going to let her husband or her kids, small kids, uh, come between her and God's work. So she decided God was telling her, abandon her family and go over to Africa and do missionary work. Now, that would be wrong. Because your commitment that you made to your husband or to your family, your kids, especially when they're little, that is your ministry. Okay? That is serving the Lord. So to say, well, I can't serve the Lord here, so I'm going to abandon my family to go somewhere else and serve God. God is saying, no, right now in your life where your kids are small, this is your ministry. He said, what about a sickly parent? It sounds like Jesus would have us to abandon our sickly parents. So we have a responsive look. I heard a story, too, another true story as I was preparing this message about a woman whose father was not really able to take care of himself and not so sickly he needed to be put in a home or anything. So she wound up getting him some good round-the-clock care, a live-in caretaker, and she felt God was calling her away to do some missionary work. Her father was taken care of. She went away for a couple, three years, and then the Lord brought her back to the States and all, and and laid it on her heart that now was her time to actually take care of her father. And the father had felt kind of abandoned. He wasn't saved, and he was kind of holding that over her. But God, she felt God wanted her now to move in, take care of him, which she did. And she really loved on him and took care of him so much so that he was overwhelmed that he finally received the Lord before he died. So what we're saying is, look, make sure you're hearing from the Holy Spirit, okay? Make sure you're hearing from the Holy Spirit. The idea here, though, is with this young guy, his father wasn't sickly. There wasn't any reason why he had to stay with his father. It's just that the family business, he wanted his inheritance. Those are not good enough reasons to wait to serve God. God is saying, look, you follow me now. Okay, you follow me now. Jesus said, you know, follow me. Let the dead bury their dead. Again, it sounds kind of harsh, but Jesus was being absolutely on the money. He wasn't speaking literally, of course, because dead people can't bury dead people. But the expression, let the dead bury their own dead, was another figure of speech used back then. And here's what it meant. Let the world take care of the things of the world. In other words, look, you are not of the world any longer. Your your priority is to make sure God is first in your life and you serve Him and do the work of the kingdom. You know why? Because the work of the kingdom is too important to push it off until later. There are people who are dying without the Lord Jesus Christ and going to hell. And you know what? That's for eternity. If the spiritually dead die physically, then they are eternally separated from God. And no business, no earthly pursuit, nothing in this world that that brings monetary gain or anything like that is worth putting before the work of God. Because souls are at stake. And you know what? The eternal souls of people always supersede any earthly pursuit. And so our priority must first and foremost be obedience to God and the work of his kingdom. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to you, right? Put God first. Make sure that he is number one. He is your first priority. That's what it means to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's first. Now, why did Matthew stick this story of these two guys in amongst all the miracles that he was showing us that proved that Jesus had power and authority over sickness, demons, in fact, over all creation. Why? Because we're part of creation. 
we are part of creation. In fact, we're the only part of the creation, along with some angels, that can live and do live in rebellion against God. And so Jesus wants us to know, or excuse me, Matthew wants us to know the same Lord, who is Lord of all creation, is Lord of our lives. He has the right. He has the right because he has made us to govern our lives. And if we want to be his disciples, guess what? We don't do it on our terms. We do it on his terms. That's the main point I think Matthew's bringing out. Because you know what? To be living back at that time and to walk with Jesus and see him actually do these miracles must have been pretty spectacular. You talk about being impacted by the pure magnitude of what you're seeing. It was easy for people to get emotionally charged up, right? Oh, man, I want to be a part of this the rest of my life. Yeah, well, see, why, why, though? Well, I don't know, but I just I like to be around this stuff. Right, exactly. We're thrill seekers by nature. We tend to gravitate. We're emotion junkies. We tend to gravitate to whatever makes us happy and upbeat and excited. And that's what churches are feeding into today because every week, if you feed people that, and it's a steady diet of the emotional, then you've got to keep pouring people experiences at people that will keep them all emotionally pumped up. That gets pretty exhausting, doesn't it? Jesus doesn't want us to follow him because it's a thrill. It's, it's a cross. And you know what? A thrill seeker is never going to pick up their cross because that's not where they're coming from. That's why Jesus chased more disciples away than wound up following him. And he did it by laying down the cost of true discipleship. It's not about you. It's not about how it makes you feel. It's about how am I going to lay down my life to follow the Lord on his terms. All right. We move to the fifth miracle now, which is not a healing of a body. But now we see that Jesus Christ has power and authority over nature, over the creation. And we read in verse 23, now when he, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Well, they got into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee uh, is also called in the New Testament the Lake of Gennesaret. Uh, it's more of a lake than a sea, obviously. It's 13 miles long, 8 miles wide at its widest point. Okay, And they got into one of these typical fishing vessels, open, uh, open vessel. Uh, not like a little rowboat, because these were commercial vessels that were used by commercial fishermen like Peter and James, John and all, uh, to fish. So they had to be able to dump the catch in the boat to get it back to shore. So these were not real small boats, but think of a very large canoe uh, in that regard. But, but something wider, longer, but you get the idea. This was typically the boat that was used on the Sea of Galilee. No doubt this was the boat that they got into. Now here's the thing. When they got onto the Sea of Galilee, a big storm came up. Why was that? What happened? Well, here's the thing. The Sea of Galilee lies just uh, over 600 feet below sea level. Mount Hermon, to the north, rises 9,200 feet above sea level. Now, the top of Mount Hermon, 9,000 feet, gets pretty cold up there. In fact, there's still snow up on top of Mount Hermon late into spring, because I mean, it's that cold. 
And here's what typically happens. You get the cold air, very cold air from the top of Hermon, rushing down the mountain uh, through the Jordan Valley uh, on over the top of the Sea of Galilee, the Galilee Basin, where there is very warm, if not hot air. You know what happens when cold air and hot air collide, right? It whips up storms. And as these, these winds hit, uh, they begin to really churn. I mean, in fact, they, they smash off the eastern cliffs uh, around the Sea of Galilee, twist and churn, and they really start to stir up the water on the Sea of Galilee. I mean, these things came out of nowhere, these storms. Um, these guys were seasoned fishermen, at least four of them. And they had seen, no doubt, many storms in the Sea of Galilee, but this was a doozy, okay? And uh, because they came up so quick without warning, they were very frightening. In fact, when Matthew says in verse 24, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, the Greek word he uses, translated tempest, is seismos, the Greek word seismos. And we get the term or the word seismic from that Greek word, a reference to earthquakes. In other words, the storm was so violent that it shook the water in the lake, as one author put it, as if it were a glass of water in the hands of a great giant. So this was something. I mean, the storm became so fierce that Matthew tells us the boat was covered with the waves. Mark actually explains it a little better. He says the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Mark 4:37. And yet here's Jesus. What's he doing? Is he wringing his hands with worry? Quick, roll faster. You know, what's Jesus doing? He's asleep, right? He's asleep, right? Now, this is a beautiful picture of his humanity, first of all. He's about to give us a great display of his deity. But right, first of all, a beautiful picture of his humanity. I mean, he was tired. He was exhausted from a long day of teaching, healing, and so on. You know, the crowd's draining you because, you know, folks, you know, they, they, they had needs. And they were looking to Jesus to meet those needs. And, of course, he loved everybody and tried his best to, to meet everyone's needs. But he, it drained him. He was so exhausted that he is sound asleep in the boat, not even the tossing of the boat, the noise of the wind, or the water blowing in his face was enough to wake him up. That's how exhausted he was. But isn't it a perfect picture of peace? I've told you guys this story before. Let me just share with you quickly again. Years ago, true story, uh, the city of Phoenix had a little contest for the art community. They were going to give a prize to the artist who could best capture the concept of peace on canvas would win a prize. Second place went to the artist who painted a very beautiful picture of a quiet meadow on a spring morning. It was very beautiful. Sun was out, you know, and you saw the, the, uh, the wildflowers in bloom and a butterfly here and there and the birds, uh, you could tell they were singing and all and sun was out. Just a very beautiful, peaceful scene, right? That was second place. You know what picture won first place? It was a picture of a very dark, stormy day. Close to some water, you see the waves were roaring. Uh, the artist painted, you know, where you see the wind and the rain was coming down heavy and trees were bending, you know, and there was uh, lightning, you know, in the painting and, and a real storm was, was taking place. And then all of a sudden you look and there was a, in the cleft of a, of, of a rock, okay, a little sparrow had built a nest and was sound asleep. And you know what? Those two paintings depict different Christians' concepts of peace. 
A lot of Christians think that peace is the absence of storms. And so they pray, God, give me peace in the sense that, Lord, don't let the storms of life touch me. But God is saying, no, real peace is peace in the midst of the storm. Because the storms of life are inevitable. You cannot ask God to keep you from all storms. You know why? Because as the Arabs say, they have a proverb, all sunshine makes a what? Desert. All sunshine makes it. We need storms in our life. And we're going to see why in just a moment. And so God won't give us the absence of storms, but he will give us peace in the midst of the storm if we really trust in him. That's the Lord Jesus. That's what he was epitomizing here in this story. The peace of God that passes human understanding, peace in the midst of the storm. Well, you know, it wasn't the circumstance that woke the Lord Jesus up, right? It was a perfect peace with the creation, no matter if storms were raging or not. You know what woke the Lord up? It wasn't the circumstance. It was his blockheaded disciples who didn't know how to have any peace because they didn't have any faith, right? And so they came to Jesus, verse 25, and said to him, awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're perishing. Actually, Mark records in his gospel that they said a little more. They also said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? To which Jesus responded, Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. Why did the Lord say to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? It's because Mark tells us that before they got into the boat, Jesus said to his disciples, Come, let us go over to the other side of the sea. Let us go over to the other side. Let me just say this to you. Two things. You need to understand. If Jesus tells you, let's go over, guess what? There's no way you can go under. You know, if he had said, yeah, let's get into the boat, let's sink to the bottom. Well, that would be a little problem, okay? I'd be a little nervous there, too. He didn't say that, right? He said, come, let us what? Go over. Let who? Us. That's the second important thing to remember. Who was with them in that boat? If that boat had gone down, Jesus would have had to gone down with it. That wasn't going to happen, folks. You know one thing, if Jesus is with you, you ain't going down. I mean, he had work to do. And if Jesus commands you to do work for him, believe me, you might go through a storm or two. You're not going under because he's with you, right? I think that most of us as Jesus' disciples today, though, often face the storms of life the same way his disciples back then faced that literal storm in the Sea of Galilee that day. You know, we find ourselves in some kind of a storm. And you fill in the blank, right? But the circumstance is raging out of our control. Okay, you ever been there? Panic is setting in. Of course, you're praying. You're praying like you've never prayed like this, okay? You're crying out, Lord, save me. You know, don't you care? You know, why are you answering? Are you asleep? Are you up there, Lord? You know? And you're praying and you're praying. And you know what? Often the Lord is silent, isn't he? Often the Lord is silent. And so we keep crying out in desperation. But nothing is happening. The Lord isn't answering. And the more we pray, the worse the situation seems to be getting until we have the feeling that the Lord has abandoned us. And so we start feeling, that's it. I'm done. I'm a corner. I'm going down. There's no way out of this. And just about the time we have given up all hope, suddenly the Lord answers our prayer, calms the storm, and says to us basically, why were you so fearful? Why were you so fearful? 
Did you doubt my faithfulness in your life? I mean, have, have I ever let you sink before? Have I ever broken the promise that I made to you when you first decided to follow me? That I would never leave you nor forsake you? Don't you realize that I was with you in that storm? Where did you think I went? You know, when Jesus is on board, guys, there's no way you can sink. When Jesus is on board, there's no way you can sink. That's why it's so important to have Jesus on board, isn't it? The question is, is he on board in your life today? What do I mean? I mean, have you invited him into your heart? Is he your Lord and your Savior? Are you a full-on committed disciple of Jesus with Jesus on board in your life? Look, I'd hate to get caught in one of those hurricane-type storms of life without Jesus. Left to fend for myself. I mean, there are so many people in our society who are sailing along in life, you know, plotting their own course. And they steer themselves right into the path of a raging storm. I see it all the time. I see it all the time. These are unbelievers I'm thinking of primarily. You know, they don't want to take any direction from God. They want to do their own thing, you know. They want to be the master of their faith, the captain of their ship. And so they don't want to take any direction or correction or guidance from God and his word. They want to do their own thing. And so they steer their life and often their families into the path of a raging storm, a terrible situation that is now tearing them and their families apart. And you know what? They don't have Jesus to turn to like we do as his disciples or like those disciples literally back then. These folks are on their own. And my heart goes out to them because they don't have, when they face one of these severe storms in life, and we all face them, they don't have Jesus to turn to to calm the storm, to comfort their hearts. And that's why we see so many shipwrecked lives in our society today. It's just a testimony to the rebellion in the heart of man that says, I'm not going to have you guide my life. I'm going to do my thing. I don't want you interfering with my life, Lord. And the Lord says, you know, if you let me take the steering wheel, I'll guide you through those jagged rocks. I'll take you to the desired harbor. No, I'm going to do my own thing. Okay. And people's lives are on the ground. Marriages get shipwrecked. Families get shipwrecked. Destroyed. It's sad. It's a testimony to the rebellion in the heart of man who refuses to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, take control. I can't do this anymore. I keep messing my life up. I want you to be the captain of this ship. And whatever you say, that I will do. But I'm not going to try to run this deal anymore. I can't do it. Listen, for those of us who have Jesus, quote-unquote, on board in our lives, when you find yourself going through um, a storm, and you will, some bigger than others, remember this, Jesus Christ is with you. I mean, you know, your marriage this morning might be going through a pretty sizable storm. I mean, you know what? As you look at the situation, it looks pretty grim. You've cried out to the Lord many times. And as of right now, he hasn't helped you yet. You think he's not listening. Maybe he's asleep. I don't know. But don't make the same mistake the disciples made. Accusing him of not caring. That's a foolish charge. Don't lose faith. Trust him to see you through it. I mean, maybe this morning it's not a marital issue, but it's a wayward child. That's a lot of heartache, isn't it? 
when you have a son or daughter that you've done your best to raise in the ways of the Lord and they've walked away, that's a hard thing. Maybe the storm you're facing right now is financial. Or maybe it's physical. Maybe you've gotten some bad news from the doctor. You've got a pretty serious condition. Look, don't lose heart. You know, Fight that sinking feeling, if I could put it that way. I mean, the Lord is with you. And even in this storm, he is working to teach you things, to show his power. But you know what? The devil's going to do his best to tell you God doesn't care. That God isn't listening. God, you know, and you know what? As the, story, as the problem intensifies, even though you're praying like crazy and things are getting worse, the natural reaction is to think, God, you don't care about me. And God is saying, didn't I tell you that all things were working together for your good? You're going to have to trust me. I heard a true story about a guy who was actually shipwrecked on an uninhabited island, okay, and was able to scrounge a few things before the ship went down and dragged him to shore and he built himself a little makeshift hut to stay out, keep him out of the elements and all by himself. And he was a believer and he would, he would scan the horizon every day looking for praying and scan the horizon, looking for any rescue vessels, you know, and, and just trusting God that God was going to to spare him eventually, right? And, and so one evening he's out looking for food. He comes back and to his horror, his little hut is engulfed in flames. What would you think? Okay, what would you, if that was you? Here you are in this terrible situation. You're praying. You're trying to make the best of it. You're trusting God. And all of a sudden now, the few possessions you have, they're all gone. What would you think? You probably think, God wasn't so kind. God wasn't so good. Here he is kicking me when I'm down. Thanks, God. A lot of people feel that way. He was just devastated. He fell on the beach, slept. Next morning he wakes up and he sees a rescue boat coming. Comes to the shore, captain steps out. Guy says, How did you find me? He said, We saw the smoke from your signal fire last night. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? God said, I don't mean evil for you. Even in the circumstances you can't understand it, trust me. I'm working things out. Now, that doesn't mean that every marriage will be salvaged, that doesn't mean that every situation will work out the way we want. That requires faith, too. That ultimately God is in control. And if, doesn't, if the thing doesn't work out the way I'm hoping for, what's God got for me in it? What is God teaching me through it? Very important lessons. And so let's finish up verse 26. Then he arose, rebuked the winds, after he rebuked the disciples. He rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was great calm. And here's the thing, folks. These guys were fishermen. They had been through storms. When a storm subsides, you know how that goes, right? Still a little wind blowing, waves are still choppy, lake is still choppy. It was instantly calm. That blew their mind. Verse 27, the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? The disciples were so amazed and marveled at such power displayed by Jesus over creation that it led them to ask, Who can this be? I mean, that even the winds and the sea obey him. Who can this be? It be the Lord of glory. That's who it be. The God of all creation. The only one who has that kind of power and authority over his creation. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. O Lord God of hosts, 
Who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 46, verses 1 to 3. God is our refuge. Keep this in mind if things in our country get rough. Okay, keep this in mind. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountain be, mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to have peace in the midst of the storms. This is going to be literal during the tribulation period. But right now, of course, it applies to us in the various storms of life that we face. And let me just end by saying this. The um, passage uh, concludes with the statement, who can this be? Who can this be? That even the winds and the sea obey him. It really doesn't end with the idea of applying this to the personal storms of our lives, although we can do that and have done that, and how we need to keep our eyes on him, and he will see us through and work it out for his glory. But the real point is Christology. Who can this be? See, who this is will affect your entire eternity. Who is this? This is God incarnate. The word became flesh and walked among us. This is who this is. All creation bows before him. He spoke it into existence. He can calm it with a word. And there's nothing in our lives, because we're part of that creation, that God can't calm and work and bring peace in the midst of turmoil if we will look to him. We're going to see this more clearly through another storm that they went through later on. So I won't say much about it, but I will say this. This storm allowed Jesus to show his power to these men in a way they had never seen before. This deepened their awareness of who he was and increased their worship of him because now they saw him as he really was, bigger than they had even imagined. Look, all the storms in our life are simply tests by God to increase our faith in his power and to expand our understanding of his greatness. Why? That we might become deeper and better worshipers of him. Jesus said the Father is seeking what? True worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. How are you going to worship God if you don't really, properly, if you don't really understand and, and even a small, we'll never understand his full glory and greatness on this earth. We have to be glorified before we can even begin to understand how great he really is. But God is always trying to increase our awareness of how great he really is because it deepens our worship of him. We, on the other hand, here's what we're always trying to do. We're always trying to figure God out. That's what we ask, why God? Don't, is it? We go through a circumstance, storm, what do we ask? Why God? See, we want to figure God out. God doesn't play that game with us. He doesn't tell us the whys. He just keeps pointing us back to who he is, right? Book of Job. But we want to always figure out 
the wise of God, that makes God small. Because we want to understand God. God wants to make himself big so we can worship him better. It was J.B. Phillips who translated the New Testament. Good translation, paraphrase. J.B. Phillips translation. Here's what J.B. Phillips said. If God was, was small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. So that's the choice he got. You got to drag God down off his lofty throne and try to squeeze him into your, our thimble brains. You know, the infinite God, squeeze him into our little finite minds and, and have a lot of leakage in the process. And, you know, or you want to just, okay, Lord, I'm not going to even try to comprehend your greatness. I'm just going to, wow. You know, when you work, I just awe, stand in awe and go, wow. That was incredible. Man, I, my back was against the wall. I thought I was going under, man. I thought I was a, a, a goner. And then God steps in and, wow. And what does that do? It causes us to fall to our knees and worship. That's what he wants. And that was the point of this story. That we follow the Lord for the right reasons, understanding what we're getting ourselves into. It's all for his glory. And then when the storms come, it's still about his glory. It's not about me. It's still about him. Because I want to know him in a deeper way. I can't do that without storms. So may God give us the grace to understand. And when the storms of life come, and they will come, that they don't make us bitter, they make us better. Better worshipers. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Lord, we don't even begin to know you, really. I mean, I know that as your people, we do know you enough to be saved. But, Lord, I know you're always trying to increase our knowledge of your greatness. And yet so often, Lord, the very storms you used to do that, we're complaining about, feeling sorry for ourselves, charging you foolishly, like you don't love us, and so on. When all you're trying to do is help us to know you better, that we might worship you deeper. We just thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. Teach us the lessons that you have taught us this morning, but teach them in a way, Lord, that we apply them and live them out in our lives. We just praise you, Lord. We love you. We thank you now for all your promise that we just thank you, Lord, for everything you've blessed us with. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.